Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybox together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Believe and be unshakable. What if you could have a battle-tested guide to unshakable performance? What if you could have a confident mind that you can take with you wherever you go into whatever conversation or whatever job that you are involved in? Well, my next guest is a quite a special one and a conversation that I really, really enjoyed, actually. His name is Dr. Nate Zinsa. Now, for those of you that don't know who he is, for over many, many years, Nate has spent his career training the minds of the US Military Academy's cadets as they prepare to lead and perform when the stakes are the very highest on the battlefield. Along this work, he has coached world-class athletes, including a Super Bowl MVP, Eli Manning, numerous Olympic medalists, professional ballerinas, NHL NHL are all-stars and college All-Americans teaching them to overcome pressure and succeed on the biggest stages. Dr. Nate has come to understand that one single trait above all makes peak performance possible, and that is confidence or the belief in oneself. Whether your mission involves leading a platoon into combat, returning on an opponent's uh, serve or delivering a sales pitch to a room full of skeptical prospects. I can put my hand up and say I've done that. It is a scary thing. You perform best when you are so certain about your abilities that flow or fear, doubts and confusions, uh, slows to the barest minimum. What's more is that Dr. Nate has come to understand that confidence is a skill that can be taught, improved on, and applied to by anyone to enhance nearly every aspect of our lives and careers. Dr. Nate has a brand new book coming out, which you can go and get right now, which is called The Confident Mind. And like I said in the beginning, it's a battle-tested guide to unshakable performance. And what you're going to discover during this conversation is all about, really, confidence, what it is, what it's not, 
where it comes from, how we can improve our own confidence levels, how we can not get deceived by what I guess the self-improvement and self-development all talk about what confidence is. But this is a really a scientific-based approach to real confidence and how we can apply it to our own lives uh, and become better human beings and live a more fulfilled life as a result. So if you do get something from this conversation, please share it around to your friends and family. All right, my friends, that's enough from me. Let's journey into the story box as we listen to the incredible wisdom, the advice, and the stories from none other than Dr. Nate Zinsa. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be aboard. It's great to have you here. Like I was saying to you just a moment ago, I have this huge appreciation and fascination into the whole realm of confidence because I feel like it is a big subject and a lot of people are trying to learn more about it and understand it, what actually is it, where it comes from. And so I'm grateful that you uh, have written this new book, uh, The Confidence Mind, The Confident Mind, sorry, and people can go and get a copy of it uh, next year. I believe they can pre-order it now. But before we dive into all that amazing stuff, my very first question for you is a question that I love asking all my guests at the very start, which is, what does success look like for you? The short answer is, have you done the best with what you have? Mm. I really like the definition to expand on that, that the famous basketball coach John Wooden provided, success being the peace of mind that comes from self-knowledge that you did the best with what you had in the situation that you were in. Mm. Uh, when Coach Wooden was developing his national champion basketball teams at UCLA, he rarely talked about the score. It wasn't about what the scoreboard showed. It wasn't about what was in the win-loss column. It was about that inner sense that you had done the best that you could at the moment you were called upon to do so. Mm -hmm. To me, that's what success is. It's that peace of mind that comes from the knowledge that you have done the best that you could have done at the moment you were called upon to do it. Did you know John Wooden personally? Just curious. I, I never met the man. I've read several books uh, by him, several books about him. Um, I've got a few wonderful video clips where he talks about his understanding of success, uh, but I never had the honor of meeting him. Hmm. This idea of creating, I guess, a, a peace of mind in one's life. Have you struggled with creating a peace of mind about your your life at all? I think everybody struggles with that. <laughs> um, so the, the quick answer is absolutely. Um, I think everybody struggles with it. And I don't think it's a destination that people ever conclusively reach. Mm. Uh, it kind of grows and grows as you get better at it it becomes farther and farther it's a little bit of an asymptote um but the key point is are you striving for that are you pursuing it or are you just letting circumstance dictate your degree of peace of mind or your lack of peace of mind mm. why do you think that first question was leading to this question why do you think that people actually do struggle with peace of mind. And why do you think you struggle with it uh, some, sometimes in your life? 
uh, because the criteria for success that most of us grow up learning are all about externalities, all about how you compare to somebody else mm. or how you compare to some abstract standard, whether it's the degree of your education, how much income you have, how uh, attractive your spouse is, what kind of car you drive, what kind of statistics you uh, accrue in, say, a sports career. Uh, success and peace of mind has always been associated with those kind of externalities, and it really hasn't been about how you think about yourself and how you feel internally. Does that damage your confidence level at all? Of, of course, mm. uh, because I am supposed to be comparing myself to person X, person Y, person Z. And if I don't meet that partic those particular criteria, if I don't come up to that supposed standard, I am less of a performer, less of a competitor, and in some cases, less of a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of my work is separating that sense of who you are from your accomplishments from what the sporting press or the fans have to say about you. Mm. Have you looked at in your line of research when or when in particular this line of thinking around you've, you're always comparing to someone else, you've got to reach a certain level in order to be confident, in order to be quite successful by the world standard. Have you looked at where that began for society or has it always been there and we just have just adapted to it over, I guess, the course of our lives? If I, if I get your question right, I think for most people it starts, you know, in their middle school years, yeah. 11, 12, they really become conscious of where they are relative to their uh, age group peers, where they are relative to their sport teammates or the other people who are, you know, training in an instrument or training towards some kind of competency. It seems to happen pretty early, you know, um, five and six year olds, they pretty much don't care. Um, and they don't really compare themselves to anyone else um, in those latter years of elementary school into middle school. And certainly in the high school, that those kinds of hierarchies and comparisons uh, become so powerful. And I think it's exacerbated in today's world because of the social media presence uh, that we have, where there is this constant source of information about how, how, how good a time somebody is having at place X and what wonderful meals they're eating at place Y and... All of that is coming to is coming into our lives, and it, it can leave us wondering. Well, geez, I'm not having such a good time as as these people. I'm not achieving what they seem to be achieving. What the heck is wrong with me? Yeah. Um, we have to be careful about that. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that growing up, there was this shift because I had no worries at all with going up to adults and asking them weird, random, and wild questions. No fear at all. But then as I got older, I noticed that that started to fizzle away a little bit. And right. I was curious why that was the case. Like, was it because of the things that I was seeing around me? Was it what people were telling me? Like, is it that little 
shift of information that goes on in uh, adolescence, I guess you could say, for a young person where that that rewiring in the brain because of the information. Uh, and why doesn't that happen the same as a kid? Is it like we're protected from from that, if that question makes any sense at all? I think it may have something to do with just the biological maturation. Um, at, you know, we are social beings. We all want to fit in. I think during that ad adolescent stage, our need to be part of something, our need to be accepted, our need to have a you know, a particular crew or gang or bunch of people that we identify with and we fit in with them, we approve of them, they approve of us. Um, that becomes, that seems to become particularly important mm. in those middle school, you know, preteen and early teen years. Mm. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on, on that front. Dr. Nate, when did you first start looking into psychology and, and confidence and, and all that sort of stuff. Was this something that you've always been interested in or when was the moment that you officially began this journey? Um, I would have to say I was 12 years old and I went from the very small public elementary school in my town to a all boys, rather elite country day school. And as soon as I walked into that new building, I noticed all these signs and posters week after week after week advertising the upcoming game of our soccer team. Yep. And it seemed that the soccer team was quite successful and the soccer team was well publicized. And there really didn't seem to be any other teams at the school that received the same level of interest. And I thought, okay, this is kind of interesting. The soccer team's good. Okay, big deal. But the same thing happened the next year and the next year and the next year. And there was this constant sense that the soccer team at this particular school was a particular powerhouse. And it struck me as rather interesting that so many of the same players from the soccer team who would then play basketball in the winter and say tennis or track or baseball or lacrosse in the spring. Oh, this is back in the days when people did two or three sports well before the modern push towards specialization. It it was very surprising to me that teams consisted consisting of the same athletes. Many of the same athletes did much didn't do nearly as well as the soccer team. Mm. And this, as I said, persisted for years and years and years. And so it got me thinking: What is it about the soccer program? What is it about this particular organization that seems to have a sense of itself? as being, you know, perennially effective and, and they were good. Um, and I didn't understand this till many years later, actually studying the Rosenthal effect, the Pygmalion effect, the idea that if you communicate to somebody, you know, powerful expectations and lots of encouragement, they tend to start thinking of themselves as being powerful. Mm -hmm. um, and that is exactly what was happening in this particular soccer team. And interesting enough, it wasn't happening very much amongst the other teams. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had a curious experience. Um, here I am, I'm 15 years old. It's my ninth grade year. Um, and I'm sitting at the lunch table. And I didn't play soccer for, for this school, by the way. I just noticed that this was happening. And one day I'm at the lunch table and I'm telling a few other fellas in my class that, you know, I think our wrestling team is going to be really good in a few years. 
we've got this guy and we got this guy and we got this guy and you know we get a little experience under our belt i think i think we're really going to be you know a good team now backstory is that the wrestling program at the school had been a doormat mm. for the last decade i mean we might win two dual meets a year and they were both against little sisters of the poor um we were not a you know we were a doormat and so i'm talking about how good i think we can be and I'll never forget this. One of my classmates looks at me from across the table and he says, Nate, shut up. You're never going to be any good. Guys at this school don't wrestle well. We're good in soccer. Sometimes we're good in swimming. Sometimes we're good in, ten in tennis. But we've never been good at wrestling and we never will be. Shut up. Hmm. And it left me sitting back in my chair going, who gave this fellow the crystal ball? You know? What a wonderful demonstration of a self-fulfilling prophecy that this fellow was operating under. It was the opposite of the self-fulfilling prophecy that the soccer program was operating under. That was a very powerful one. He was operating under a much different one. And I'm proud to say that in my junior year, that wrestling team had the first winning season that it had had in 10, 12 years, not necessarily because we were such talented, monstrous wrestlers, but we've refused to buy into the self-limiting belief that guys at this school don't wrestle well. Yeah. So for me, this whole exploration of the relationship between how you think about yourself and what you actually experience in your life goes way back to those preteen years for me. What happens into the in the brain? I think you're, I'm interested in this. What happens in the brain or the mind more or less? when we do have a limiting belief, when that limiting belief sort of enters in and takes over, what happens in, in the mind? Uh, it basically creates a template for what the unconscious thinks you actually want. Yeah. And so the unconscious tends to act that out. Um, I was explaining this to a cadet here at West Point just this morning. You know, the stories you tell yourself about yourself influence the level of and the quality of effort that you're going to put into a, a given activity. Mm. The quality of effort naturally influences your results. So your results end up being a confirmation of the belief about yourself that you started out with. Yeah. You know? Is there one limiting belief that is worse than the others or are they all the same they're all just as equally bad well that's a great question i've never been asked that mm -hmm. um right off the top of my head my response is there are a whole lot of killers uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know they could all be sort of lumped under the umbrella of I'm not good enough at this moment to execute the way I want to execute or to achieve what I want to achieve. Mm -hmm. You could put them all under that umbrella. Um, but I think everybody has a few sort of pet ones. Uh, and one of the points that I make in the book, The Confident Mind, is that your own personal negativity will always find that little thing about you that you are the most sensitive and secure about, you know? And that little voice in the back of your head 
will bring that up and remind you of that. And it always seems to know the thing that you're not the least comfortable with. And it's going to put that in your face time and time again. Yeah. Um, it's a very curious phenomenon. It always seems to know what would bother us the most, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, you know, I, I I cite the example in the book of, say, a swimmer who's trying, who struggles a little bit with a quality flip turn, yeah. um, watches another teammate or a competitor execute that particular movement really smoothly and, and comfortably, and they go, damn, I wish I could do it that well. Damn, I wish I could do it that well. Um, what's the matter with me? How come I'm not doing it that well? Uh, what's it going to take? Um, and they stay in that uh unconfident mentally destructive loop for quite a while yeah the reason why i was curious about that question because it is something that i've thought about many many times and i've tried to i guess reason with my own thoughts around it because <laughs> you you mentioned there a moment ago is the, the stories that we tell ourselves and you know for me in my life if i was to look at all the the negative stories that I have told myself, the main one that I seem to come back to is that you're right. I'm not enough. I never will be enough. And that seems to cripple me more than Mm -hmm. say, Hey, I'm ugly because that when I say that I'm ugly or I don't like the sound of my own voice, then that usually went back in line with the worth side of things. So it was all coming back to that one idea of how hey, you're not enough and you never will be enough. So they're all cultivating this one thing and then it's just crippling my mind. So then I won't be able to move forward. And it's just, that's limiting me and my ability to be a human being really, and to excel and to perform at my best. So that's the way I thought about it. I think you're dead on, you know, that's absolutely the way it works. And yeah. the alternative is to paradoxically start thinking about what you want as if you already have it even if you don't at the moment you know you've got to start telling yourself different stories you know i i was crazy enough i guess when i was 13 14 15 16 to think hey we can have a really good wrestling team uh even though there wasn't a whole lot of data upon which to draw that conclusion um i just decided to think that yeah call me nuts um lots of people have um i just decided to think that and because i had that notion in my head it enabled me energized me helped me go to summer camps train harder really really organize a lot of actions and behaviors Mm. that would push me towards better technique, better conditioning, et cetera, et cetera. Um, This is not to say that I was the most confident, mentally tough high school wrestler in New Jersey history, far from it. Um, Mm. But I took a step to think about how I wanted to be and I began to affirm that a little bit. I think I could have done a better job of it, but at least I did I did step out of the um, the sort of conventional belief in my 
school environment at the time. Mm. You said that some people have called you crazy, and I think that's totally fine. It's the crazy ones that actually do make a huge difference in the world. If we look at Einstein or um, Edison, everyone probably told them that they were crazy with their theories and all that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. And look what happened with them. They became well-known. So I think that's part of leadership (laughs) in a a sense. But I'm interested in uh, when you were growing up or not when you were 15 or 16 and the wrestling story, which was a great story, by the way, what has been sort of like one of the craziest thoughts you've had in your mind that you thought, hey, that's that's wild, that's outrageous, but then it ended up coming true. Another story not uh, in line with the wrestling one. Has it been one for you? Uh, another story about my own life where I said, okay, um, I'll do something a little unconventional. Um, yeah, I decided to go on a mountaineering expedition uh, after my second year in college, um, and I was going to put myself in an environment that I had never really been in, um, I was going to take some serious risks, and we were going to try to climb some that had never been climbed before. Um, okay, anytime you're trying to climb something that's never been climbed before, uh, mm-hmm. I think you're by definition a little bit crazy. Yeah. Uh, if it was easy, it would already have been done. Um, so yeah, I put myself in considerable harm's way. Um, our party did, and we ended up, um, climbing a route on a particular mountain that nowadays is climbed many, many times a year. Mm -hmm. Um, it's a nice feeling to have pioneered that. Um, but it was pretty audacious and pretty crazy of us at the time. Mm. I, I always think of that story of the guy that ran the four minute mile. Everyone told him that it couldn't be done. It was too crazy. And then he went and did it. <laughs> so it's like, don't tell and, me. And what then within six months, another guy did it. Yeah. And then within 12 months, that other guy and the same, and the first guy, Roger Bannister did it both in the same race. And now the world record in the mile is three forty six or something like that. Nice. Um, yeah. Shoes are better. Training methods are better. Track surfaces are faster. Um, but once once Bannister did that in May of 1954, again, it was more the, the breaking of the conceptual barrier. Oh, it can be done. If he can do it, I guess I can do it. Mm. But somebody had to do it first. Yeah. Somebody had to be nutty enough to actually believe that such a thing was possible going against the conventional wisdom of the time. Mm. How does courage and confidence play in with each other? Are they in line at all? Oh, I think they're definitely in line. Um, How do they apply to leadership as a whole? Well, sometimes you're going to have the courage. You're going to have to have the courage to do something that is uncomfortable. Um, you're going to have to tell somebody in your chain of command that they are not delivering, that they are not meeting a standard. You're going to have to have the courage to break that news to them. You're going to have to have the courage to look at yourself Mm. if you underperform. And at that point, you're going to have to say, all right, what do I have to do here? What's required of me? How am I going to get after it? And you have to build yourself up accordingly. Mm. You know, 
courage is sometimes, you know, thought of as the absence of fear, but that's really quite inaccurate. Courage is, you know, simply simple actions in the presence of fear. Yeah. Um, I see confidence is very much the same way. You know, confidence is not the a- the absence of self-doubt. Confidence is the action, the movement, the behavior in a positive direction in the presence of self-doubt. Mm. Does everyone have confidence in their life? Not necessarily. I think I think pretty much everybody has confidence in a couple of little areas. Yeah. Again, confidence is, this is a point I make in the, uh, the introduction of the book. Yeah. Confidence is very situation specific, very situation specific. And yeah. you can find any person is ridiculously confident about a couple of things, you know, but I have yet to see meet anybody who's confident about everything that they do across the board, uh, myself included. And I'm supposedly a subject matter expert on this topic. Um, but confidence is very situation specific. You know, we see it in, acad- in, in academics. So I'm, I'm very comfortable um, in history. I'm very uncomfortable in biology. Um, that's the bad news. Um, the good news is that you can become confident in any particular area of your life that you choose to if you put in the right mental work. You can become more confident in any of your various sports skill sets, you know, for, you know, for, for the, for the footballer, you can, you can be really confident in your ability to shoot on goal, less confident in your ability to mark well, less confident, or maybe more confident in your ability to dribble, to make a centering pass, to receive passes, all those little skills carry with it their own, their own set of of, of their own level of confidence, if you will. Um, so if you really want to be a great ball player, you better be freaking honest yeah. about how much confidence you have in any particular aspect of your game. Mm. And you got to be willing to work on the confidence in the areas where you don't seem to have a lot, because that's where you're going to need it uh, in the, in the important moments of a contest. Is it dangerous to have too much confidence? It's only dangerous if you're not willing to put the work in Mm. to back it up. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think there's such a thing as too much confidence. I think there is such a thing as false confidence. You know, you know, the guy who beats on his chest and says, yeah, I'm really great. And that's just bravado. And that's just posturing. That's different from the guy who has done a heck of a lot of work and who just happens to be an outspoken, naturally extroverted type of type of individual. Oh, that person has re- really has done the work. I mean, he doesn't mind talking about it. OK, mm-hmm. I, I think there's such a thing as false confidence when you can when you talk big, but you haven't done the work. Yeah. You really don't, you know, you pretend to have a sense of certainty, but deep down you really don't. Um, mm. That's a good point, actually. Because I'm I'm curious, like, when you look at overly confident people, I, I, I'm just going to be honest, I tend to, like, judge them and 
think, are you being proud <laughs> or is no. it like actual, are you going to make this happen? And it's kind of that little bit of, I guess you could say limiting belief in myself for that person um, because the pride gets in the way and usually they say pride comes before a fall, right? So you, you want to be careful of that. So how do we build, I guess, on the right kind of confidence in our life to avoid going into pride? Is it more or mm-hmm. less just having to work and backing it up? Well, let, let's be honest. Success at anything requires both competence and confidence, okay? Either without the other is rather insufficient. Um, and as you point out, uh, our world seems to have a little bit of uh, discomfort with confident people. And our world very much has an ambivalent understanding and relationship with the concept of confidence in the first place. We all say it's important. We all know that you have to have it. But God forbid you have too much or you talk about it too much. Um, Having too much is deadly. Having not enough is insufficient. And what's just right is never made precisely clear. Um, You know, so to keep expanding on this, I think it's really important for everybody to have a very well-developed inner workhorse. And the work that you do, the practice you put in, the hours of study that you put in, you know, that's important. But what's equally important is, are you gaining a little certainty about yourself on the basis of that? You know, do you close the book and say, yeah, now I really understand Newton's three laws of thermodynamics. Good for me. You know? Whatever it is that you're working on, whether it's an academic competency or a sports skill or a musical instrument, you got to give yourself credit for what you do, for what you've developed, as opposed to discounting it. Oh, yeah, I put all this work in, but I still have a long way to go. Um, That's so typical in our world, and it undermines one's confidence to the point where you can really have plenty of skill but you're still riddled with self-doubt, which means that your skill is not going to express itself when the time comes, you know? Can you ever get rid of the self-doubt like fully completely, or is it always going to be? No, I don't think, I don't think you ever get rid of it. 100%. Um, I think a certain degree of self-doubt is wired into us biologically from the hundreds of thousands of years that human beings existed on this planet under rather difficult survival conditions, you know? We're, we're pretty comfortable these days, COVID notwithstanding, you know? So to a certain degree, there's a little bit of worry and doubt wired into us. I think our society makes it much worse. But the important point is you can continue to fight back against it. You can continue to, as I say in the book, Acknowledge your inner negativity, acknowledge that voice, silence it, and then replace it with something else. You know, just the same way you win the argument with your obnoxious older sibling 
younger sibling, you get the last word and you can always get the last word in against that voice of fear and doubt. And you may have to do that over and over again and over and over again. And as long as you're doing it, as long as you're acknowledging it, silencing it, replacing it, you are winning the game. Mm. You are doing, you're doing just fine because the fella or the gal that you're competing against, they've got the same level of self-doubt you do. <laughs> if you do a better job handling it than the other person, advantage you. Mm. So even though it may, you know, even though you may never win this decisive once and for all victory over self-doubt, you can always be winning the small battles here and there. And as long as you're winning those small battles, you're going to come up. You're going to, you're going to give yourself the best chance to be the best you can be in the moment. Mm. This question may or may not get me in trouble <laughs> uh, with, okay. with males and females. Um, but I'm, I'm very curious, is there a, a distinction between confidence in men and confidence in women. Is that something that you've studied as well? I have not looked at those gender differences in great detail. You know, it's no secret that most young women are socialized to be a little less assertive, mm. dare I say, a lot less aggressive than young men. Um, that being the case, I have found that the same, the same drills to build the same skills mm. work equally well with male athletes as with female athletes. Um, there's a, you know, there's a bit of a socialization difference between the two genders, as I've mentioned, but I think there's really more similarity than there is difference as, as far as that goes. And no, that question doesn't get you in trouble at all. Good. <laughs> I'm glad. I was a little bit worried because <laughs> nowadays talking about gender roles and, and all that sort of stuff, so much has changed. But I think talking about confidence in both aspects, because in my, my own experience, I've noticed that I know a lot of women that I guess you could say they're more confident than me in a lot of areas in their life. And I look at that and it kind of inspires me and same with men as well. So the men in my life, they're extremely confident and I'm looking at that and thinking, well, how can I apply what they know into my life and help build my own level of confidence, which kind of leads me to my next question revolving around when people look at someone that is confident, say like an Eli Manning, is it more about, uh, or, or how they walk around, what they say, what they do. Is that all encompassing around a person who has real confidence? Um, I would say, yeah, it's all mixed um, mixed in together. You know, mm. if you look at a, if you look at a world-class athlete who seems to carry herself very confidently, you know, a Serena Williams, yeah. Um, that outward, what we see on camera is an outward expression of an inward feeling. And I know that Serena Williams has worked on her confidence. She's, she said that publicly, you know, 
Okay, so she works on her confidence. And that that inner work, the way she remembers certain things, forgets other things, the story she tells herself about herself, those thoughts create certain feelings and those feelings translate into uh, observable behaviors. The way she walks on the court, the way she interacts uh, with coaches, opponents, referees, etc. So I've got a couple more questions for you, Dr. Nate, if that's okay with you. So if we were to look at, say, for example, or let me ask you this question instead. So in your research of learning more about confidence, was there anything that surprised you at all? Anything that surprised me? Yes. What surprised, what continues to surprise me to this day are the athletes that I meet who are coming to me because, gosh, I, you know, I don't feel good about where my game is. I don't know if I can make this team. Uh, I, I really don't seem to be the same kind of comfortable, confident player I used to be. And they tell me about, oh, I was uh, before I, you know, became before I entered the college ranks of competition, I was uh high school All-American, captain of my team, leading scorer two years ago. They have this great long list of accomplishments. And now I just don't feel like I'm that same person anymore. Mm-hmm. And so we start talking about confidence. And I ask them, where does confidence come from? And they typically say, well, it comes from having a lot of success. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I start scratching my head and I say, now, wait a minute. You're telling me that confidence comes from success. You just rattled off a whole list of accomplishments that are pretty darn successful. And yet you don't feel any confidence. Mm. So what has been surprising to me is that people don't allow their good experience to work for themselves. People have this tendency to discount their experiences and not allow them to produce feelings of peace of mind and ease ease of being that allows their skill, their talent, their hard work to express itself come recital time, game time, exam time, interview time, operation time for for the heart surgeon. Mm. So what really has surprised me is how good people are at fooling themselves um, <laughs> about their own experience. Do you think that you'll be studying or learning new things about confidence as you go along and you continue to study confidence? Do you think like you've put everything into this book? Well, I put pretty much everything into this book that I happen to know at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will not be so arrogant as to assert well, this is the last and final word, ladies and gentlemen. There will never be any more. Um, I don't know about that. Um, I think it's, it, it's a great big world out there. 100%. Uh, and there may be finer and finer distinctions that are awaiting to be discovered. I mean, we talked about gender differences. Well, there could be some very subtle distinctions between 
um, male and female athletes in an individual sport versus male and female athletes in a team sport between male and female athletes in a, a contact or collision sport, rugby, football, etc., versus a non-contact sport, tennis, swimming, etc. There are all kinds of subtleties and finer distinctions, I think, that are uh, waiting to be discovered out there. Mm. And I think this book is going to be a huge help for a lot of people. It's called The Confident Mind. Uh, why did you decide to write this book in the first place, Dr. Nate? Well, a lot of people were telling me years and years ago, you know, Doc, you got to write a book. Uh, this is some really good stuff. You got to write a book. Um, and it sort of itched in the back of my mind for quite a while. Uh, I, I know there's a book in me. I know there's a book that maybe I'm the only person who can write. Um, not that I think I'm super powered or anything like that, but I've been working in this field for a long time. I've had a lot of, you know, I've been blessed to have met the Philadelphia Flyers head coach years ago. I've been blessed to have met many wonderful coaches who referred me to uh, their players, et cetera, et cetera. I've been wonderfully blessed and I figured it was time to, okay, maybe I can bring my messaging together and put it in a format that lots and lots of people can benefit from. Was it hard? So I hope I'm doing write? something good for the world. Oh, you definitely are. <laughs> you definitely are. Was it hard for you to write at all? Oh, yes. I will, uh, you know, here's a story I tell myself about myself. <laughs> I am a laborious writer. Yep. Okay, I write slowly and carefully. I rarely go back and rewrite something that I have composed because I was so slow and careful from the start. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that that's the best way to write a book. Um, I'm just saying in answer to your question, yes, it was hard. Uh, it took a long time. It took some discipline on my part to sit my butt down and press the keys and be looking at my notes and pulling out files from case studies and calling people on the phone uh, to get the quotes just right. Uh, yeah, it was hard. Did you ever struggle with like creative blocks at all? There were certainly times when I would know, I'd have the sense of how I wanted a, a, a paragraph to flow how I wanted to incorporate a quote into a passage of the book. And I would sit there and I would ponder and I would ponder and I would ponder. And it came out ever so slowly. And sometimes I would have to push myself away and say, you know, right now it's just not happening. I got to step away from it and I'll get it tomorrow. Mm. There were certainly times when that has happened. Yeah. Yeah. The whole process of writing a book is a difficult one, but it's such a rewarding one at the same time. Um, indeed, indeed it is. Congratulations for actually achieving getting this book out there into the world. And you got Harper Collins as your publisher too. So that's even better. Um, now, Dr. Nate, I, where can people connect with you, find you and, and learn more about you just so they know before I ask you the final question? Okay, it's uh, natezinser.com or nate.zinser at gmail. I'm happy to field questions. Oh, wow. 
no one's ever given out their email <laughs> on the show just like that. <laughs> so you, be prepared. You may get some emails from people, which will be cool. Well, that's okay. I'll, I'll I'll refer them to where they can buy the book. And if it's a quick question, I'm happy to answer it. You're awesome, man. Honestly, you're absolutely awesome. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation today. I could have asked you so many more questions if we had the time. But my final question for you, this is my all-time favorite question, I ask all my guests at the very end of my conversations. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll just call it magic for the sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? that I cared enough about the world to dedicate myself to sharing something that would help other people. That I cared enough to show people that it was what was inside them, how they thought the things that were under their control, those were the things that really mattered in this world, as opposed to you know, what kind of bank accounts they ended up with, what kinds of status they achieved uh, according to societal standards. I hope I showed that, you know, it was what's inside that really counted. Mm. It's a perfect send-off message. Dr. Nate, thank you so much for your time today, sir. People, go and get a copy, pre-order a copy of his book, The Confident Mind. It's available anywhere books are sold right now. So go and get it. But thank you so much, Dr. Nate, for your time, for your story, your wisdom, your advice, everything that you're doing in the world, and for joining me today on the Storybox podcast. Well, thank you so much. Go Storybox, and I look forward to further conversations. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcast. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 